We are going to energize the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order. Hello and welcome to the debated podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, uh, we're doing something uh, different. We've done it uh, once before. Uh, We're having a leadership discussion, this time for the Liberal Democrats, the 2020 Lib Dem leadership election. So I'm not quite joined by a gang of four, but I do have a gang of three uh, who are joining me. And I'll introduce them to you uh, now. Uh, Our first guest is April Preston, uh, who is a member of the Lib Dem Federal Board, uh, was a Lib Dem Council candidate in Withington and is director of the Radical Association. Welcome to the podcast, April. Hi, how are you doing? Great, thank you. Uh, we're also joined by uh, Lena Sarah uh, Fahat, who is a campaigns officer with Welsh Young Labour and is Welsh, uh, the Welsh Lib Dems uh, SANED candidate for Carmarthen East and Geneva. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Lena. Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Great to have you. And finally, last but not least, uh, we're joined by Torin Wilkins, who is the director and founder of the Centre Think Tank. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. So um, the first question that I'd like to ask is uh, the Liberal Democrats have, of course, been uh, a major party in British politics for uh, quite a while now. Uh, But the last uh, couple, the last three uh, general elections haven't been especially great uh, for the Lib Dems. Um, so why do you think that is, uh, starting with you, April? Um, I think there's been an accumulation of um, issues that the party have not um, radically accepted, I think. Um, we're always going to struggle as the third party, um, particularly under an f- unfair voting system. And we've sort of tried to attach ourselves to Brexit, and you know, rightly so, because Brexit will absolutely disproportionately hurt the people that essentially voted for it right but that comes back to the sort of problem that I have with um how um we sort of campaign to a certain demographic and how that certain demographic comes out and vote um sorry campaigns for us Mm -hmm. so to sort of refer to them as an FPBE um we've ended up making a sort of uh, we've ended up campaigning for people that look like us and not much else. And one of the reasons why I wanted to go on federal board was to try and sort of disrupt that a little bit and um, make our campaigning more broad and try and get things out to the voters that weren't just single-based issues and try and sell them a vision. Um, uh, I think that Jo was approaching it, but she had such a short amount of time to deliver that um, that sadly it just didn't work. Um, despite her giving us an increase of 6%, um, it's still, you know, she lost a seat, it's still considered a failure. And we have to acknowledge um, that the Liberal Democrats essentially play at a higher difficulty setting because of where we are. Mm. We establish ourselves as being incredibly right on social issues, incredibly smart on economic issues. Um, so all it takes is one bad media um, interview etc etc to sort of knock us off our pedal and be laughed at by the main two um parties Mm. so we have to get smart and we have to do it really bloody quickly (laughs) um torin what what do you think of that do you think that uh, there are uh, similar um reasons as to uh, april expressed as to why the uh, liberal democrats have been uh, having problems recently 
I mean, in part, I think it, it was it was Brexit, which uh, at the end of the day, I, I've done now free conference speeches saying this policy will not work. It is not going to be one that sells with the British people. And at the end of the day, it, it didn't. You know, there were people in swing seats who at the end of the day, given the opportunity, were either scared that Jeremy Corbyn would get in and the voting for the Lib Dems would do that, or on the other hand, did not like our Brexit policy. Um, which saw, again, the Tories in the North do extremely well. So I think that is a big part of it. I also think that it was, because that was such a core message in the campaign, it was how we sold that message to the public as well. And the thing that I found in this leadership election, and you'll see in the podcast, it'll probably be out by the time this is out, um, when I've talked to the leadership contenders about it, I am slightly worried about the depth that we actually go to in terms of our understanding of, of the big European Union issues, especially what the deals are that we get outside the European Union um, when we're arguing and saying, okay, the best deal is staying in the EU. So I think it was primarily to do with the European Union and primarily um, that was what I think meant that we lost those seats in that general election. Uh, Lena, do you agree? What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I um, I think that when it came to the election, we were in a situation where, you know, every party has to pick something to doggedly go after. And we went after Brexit. But I think that we talk about Brexit like it's just one issue when it really isn't. So we ended up picking what we thought was a single issue. And actually, it wasn't, you know, and, and it was very hard to put that down comprehensively in literature but also to pitch that on the doorstep and going well we know that we've campaigned for a you know a, a final say referendum and that sort of thing for months and months and months but actually we just want to stop Brexit we're just going to come out and say it and that just didn't go down so well in a lot of our traditional seats where actually a lot of our voter core either voted for Brexit or thought that that sort of rescinding of what we were going after was just on its very grounds a liberal and I was one of those people. It was really hard standing on doorsteps and selling something that you didn't really believe in. Um, now, of course, one of the other things that associated with the Liberal Democrats in the past few years has, of course, been uh, the coalition, the coalition government between the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats. Now, to what extent do you think that the Lib Dems are still viewed as being associated with the coalition and, 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 and still negatively uh, thought of in terms of what happened during the coalition. Um, Torin, if you could start. Um, I, I think it, it depends partly on which seat you're in. So I'm in quite a, a safe Tory seat, um, which is unlikely to change hands, um, definitely in the next decade. Um, it has such a large majority at the end of the day. And in this sort of seat, you know, the Lib Dems and coalition is not viewed too badly because at the end of the day, people are like, oh, okay, so if, if, you know, if they view them in their mindset as being sort of, oh, they're soft Tories, then, you know, it doesn't really affect the party here. I think that the issue has been, obviously, in, in Labour standing seats and more left-wing seats, that was a really, really, you know, I get that we didn't really have much choice in the sense of going after coalition, but it did not exactly help our image as a political party that was fighting for the underdog and then in coalition government. So that definitely changed the dynamics of how people saw the Liberal Democrats during that period of time. So I think it did a fair amount of damage, and I think it will still do a fair amount of damage today, especially with tuition fees. You know, that's one thing that even at university now, 
you know, my experience may be completely different from other people's, but, but, you know, even now there are people do say, Oh, you know, why do we have such high tuition fees? And because of the whole uh, debacle over with the liberal Democrats and coalition on that, that does still come up sometimes. So it, it's fading, but it is still there. Uh, Lena, I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think that the uh, shadow, uh, if you can put it one way, of the coalition still haunts the Lib Dems? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, for us, it's in, in Wales, it's not really tuition fees that as the defining factor of the coalition. It's more the case that the coalition brought about austerity that is you know, that is affecting Wales to this very day. We have a devolved government. We are in coalition in Wales with Welsh Labour, um, we currently have the education minister who is the only elected um, Welsh Liberal Democrat at that level. So we are currently in coalition. It's not something that's in the past for us. Um, and when it comes to tuition fees in Wales, I always just, you know, laugh and turn around and go, well, actually, your tuition fees were raised by a Labour, applied Cymru-led coalition at our government level. So you can blame the Liberal Democrats all you want. They're not the ones who raise tuition fees in Wales. So it's really not true. But we can't shy away from the fact that a lot of the Tory cuts were very unnecessary and have brought around austerity that has impoverished um, our nation. I mean, April, what what are your thoughts on this? Oh, I I could talk about this for days because (laughs) I think like um, it's not um, Torin Torin and Lena are absolutely right. there's a there's a sort of problem here with the coalition in terms of what we know is what we know to be true as campaigners and what the voter remembers and um it's not even um left-wing seats really so for instance in Cheadle we would have won Cheadle if it wasn't that Labour went out and campaigned against us for their own votes we have to squeeze these so-called like left-wing votes in right-wing seats right um I'm actually from the council estate next to Cheadle. It isn't this like, you know, utopia of Tory votes that we just go in and go, hey, we exist. You know, you have to work for it and you have to um, offer a vision in order to get those moderate Tories, to get those Labour voters. And that became really easy under the Iraq war for obvious reasons. But now um, it's not even necessarily like if you were impacted by austerity, as many of my voters in Withington are, it's more that it was the last thing we were remembered for. So I get very disheartened when I hear Ed talk about when I was a minister, because in a way, what we're saying is for the good stuff that was good, can you forget the bad stuff that was really bad? And I've really struggled with this myself. I've, I've found myself defending the tuition fees, for example, because actually, if you can't afford to pay, you don't. And then I stop and I think, no, I sound like I'm telling the voter that they're wrong on how they feel. And when it comes to campaigning, when it comes to them putting their vote in a ballot, their feeling, whether we like it or not, is a fact. And I think, again, it comes back to being smart and how we offer a message that can build trust on um, what's happened in the time between the coalition and now. And I think Brexit was supposed to be that, but it didn't work. And also... um, I don't think that either candidate's going to escape it. I just think that one candidate will have to spend a lot of time explaining it and that will in itself become some sort of clickbait um, due to the very nature of how we scrutinise politicians now. Um, people just want to hurt one another. <laughs> Not really about scrutiny. It's more about, you know, who got the right dig. We saw that with Joe a lot. We saw that with Tim for half right reasons. But... Um, I think 
it's the word in itself has become the thing that people remember. It's not even necessarily about tuition fees or austerity. Um, it used to be that we had an ability to break these arguments down by talking about um, same-sex marriage, but the further away that we are from the coalition, um, it means that the positives are disremembered and the word is still a brand and a brand that we have to disassociate ourselves with. Now, the question is, how do we do that? Because I'm not a particular fan of just rewriting history the way that Labour do. Um, they'll just slag off their last leader and hope for the best. I'm not particularly into that way of campaigning either. Um, but I do think that we have to remedy the mistakes with austerity, as Lena points out. Yeah. We have to um, make policy that repairs the damage that we did in society. And that comes with some sort of ownership and some introspection on our campaigns team's behalf. Um, now, moving on to uh, the main subject of the podcast, the leadership election. Now, of course, we've got uh, two candidates who will be going uh, through to the final uh, the final ballot. Uh, but at the start of uh, the election, near the start of the election, there were three candidates and uh, the candidate that uh, dropped out was uh, Weira Hobhouse. Uh, now, I'm just interested, what are your thoughts on her as a potential candidate? Uh, uh, candidate, do you think that she should have stayed in the race? Uh, what are your thoughts, uh, Lena? If you could start. Yeah, I mean, I, I am still very undecided who to vote for, um, and I think that I will probably end up just abstaining. Um, but I enjoyed having Vera in the contest, um, and though I'm not sure I would have voted for her, I liked having that three-way choice, um, and I liked that she was. I think the best candidate holding other candidates to account. Um, and I really enjoyed that attitude. I found it very much a breath of fresh air. Now, for me, she doesn't really appeal to what I feel liberalism is or the way I think the party should move. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't have voted for her, but it was nice having her around. April, what are your thoughts? So, um, Weira actually started off as a councillor in Rochdale, so she has quite a lot of connections here in the northwest. Um, she does some events and stuff for us. And I've always liked the way that she speaks. Um, uh, I like that she's got a sort of forthright approach. Um, but also Vera herself has been on a bit of a journey. And I think that would just come up. So she used to be a Tory. I don't really care for that. I'm, I celebrate when someone changes their mind. But again, um, I think that it's just kind of unhelpful knowledge. to. Um, I'm happy that she's back to Layla, but I just don't really want to finger point at anyone or call them a Tory or anything. So I wasn't particularly sure um, that was helpful. Uh, I think she um, is an interesting character. My partner said to me, um, do you really think that voters in leave seats are going to listen to a, um, a pro-European German right now? And I was like, okay, yeah, maybe not. But um, I would never discount her on that. But I can see people being hostile towards her. And again, it's about how the party mechanises that better. Uh, Torin, what are your thoughts on uh, Wira uh, Hobhouse's candidacy? I mean, for me, it was sort of between closer ties with Labour and basically the, the continued push for EU membership. It's sort of, you know, if, if, we, if it doesn't work, try it and then try it again and then try it again. And I, I kind of felt that that kind of approach of, of you know, it, it doesn't really matter what the arithmetic is. It doesn't matter if we lose seats. We're just going to keep heading in that direction until something happens. Um, and I especially think now Brexit is fading to the background with COVID-19 
when the next election comes, if we're, we were still talking about that issue as much as we were last election, then I would be worried we'd essentially kind of fall into irrelevance because Brexit is not going to be the big issue, I don't think, the next election. Um, so, I, I, you know, I, I worry that even if she would have got a, a member of parliament to, you know, back her so that she could stand for the leadership. Um, so that's kind of the thing is, I think... Yeah, she added something interesting to the leadership race. It wasn't bad at all. I kind of sank, so I would have actually got to have interviewed her. Um, but that's really, for me, that was the only bit that I was kind of unhappy about, you know, her not being able to stand in the next phase because she would have perhaps, you know, added something interesting between the two candidates um, and been able to sort of stand as a person in the middle. But, you know, all speculation. Um, now, moving on to the uh, two remaining candidates. Uh, let's start first uh, with Ed Davey. Uh, April, what are your thoughts on Ed Davey as a candidate and, and how do you think that he's uh, dealt as um, the Lib Dems interim uh, leader in the House of Commons? Um, I think um, Ed has been a politician for so long that he has the ability to um, know what works and knows um, what doesn't work in terms of Parliament. So we've got um, the um, um, inquiry on um, coronavirus. Um, I think, was it last week? Was it this time last week? Um, and that's really welcome. What I don't really see is it being able to cut through people that don't already watch BBC Parliament like, like I do, <laughs> my weird friends. Um, so I think that's why we like talking about policy, but sadly we're on 6% publicly. Um, people said to me, oh, well, you know, he can't change policy. He can't, he can't really do anything, but he did. He did last week. So there are things that you can and cannot do as a leader. And there are things um, that leaders have to acknowledge through their membership. Again, we were talking about Brexit before. One of the reasons why we have the revoke policy is because our, mem our members would have just kicked off otherwise. Um, that's always a problematic um, dynamic, I agree. But where I disagree is that you can... Um, demonstrate what you would do as leader in this time through um, presenting social aims and doing things in Parliament for the better good. So um, I'm just a bit uh, concerned that so much has been thrown into um, his campaign during December and when this leadership contest started. And I think the highest we've got is 8%. Um, I genuinely started off as undecided to the extent that I was thinking of not voting at all like Lena. Um, but I often hear the term, we need to have a safe pair of hands. And I could kind of understand sort of bunker mentality after losing so much, right? You know, why would we want to change? And then I realised we haven't changed. We haven't really tried anything different. We've been, um, as Torin says, repeating the same mistakes and hoping for a different end. Um, so I realised that wasn't safe at all. Um, to acknowledge that 6% is okay right now is not safe um, and it is not going to help us. I'm not stating that we have to throw baby out with the bathwater and come up with, you know, with some sort of communist manifesto. Um, I think we have to um, spend some time looking at what's gone wrong rather than telling the membership what's gone wrong. And that hasn't happened yet because the leadership contest started in, you know, straight away. And there was delays um, from having the leadership contest um, as federal board initially voted for. I didn't. 
the reason why I didn't, and um, the reason why I wanted the leadership contest to be brought forward during this time was because it had already started. You know, people were already in their campaign teams. People were already doing and huddling and having their donation meetings and sorting out their messaging. So this was the only way of having it regulated. Um, putting all that aside, if, you know, six to eight percent is the highest that we've seen through, you know, six months of campaign building, then that really, really makes me anxious as a campaigner for my for my own ward right i mean mm-hmm. local campaigns work completely differently to national but it would be nice just for once if hq could do something in line with my messaging <laughs> uh, lena what are your thoughts on ed davies candidacy um so in the last leadership contest i backed ed davy um so i think it's best to start there uh, the reason i backed him was because um i could see, I was watching a train crash in slow motion with um, Joe and then it happened and I was like oh I'm not surprised and everyone else in, in, in my neck of the woods so that would be the Welsh party were genuinely surprised all that sort of the demographic of people who wanted to be quasi progressive were like oh this is mad we've lost so much but we sort of saw it coming so I then, for that reason, going into this leadership contest, I was like, oh, the natural option is for me to back Ed Davy again. Because actually, in between, I've, I've seen a lot more of him and I've heard a lot more about him from people who are not in my party, which I quite enjoyed. Um, now, I've gone back to being undecided. And I did sort of toy with the idea of, of the other candidates. You know, when Vera was standing, I did, you know, actually read her her uh, website and had a look at what she was proposing. And and like I said, I enjoyed that she was holding the other candidates to account. And then, you know, I've, I've looked at, at everyone's website and compared. And that's why I can't choose is that I look at what they say and it's not necessarily what they do. And for me, actions speak louder than words. It's hard to judge that at the minute. So um, I don't know. Like I said, back to Ed Davey last time, I could see myself backing him again. But at the end of the day, it's it's not something I know yet. Uh, Torin, what are your thoughts on Ed Davey's uh, candidacy? And how did he um, come across when you spoke to him? I mean, Ed has a lot of strong points. I mean, there's stuff like um, ending suspicionless stop and search and things like that, which I really like. But I mean, my uh, my, my sort of feeling from the, the interview that I did with him was, firstly, I'm a bit worried that he doesn't actually know what is going on in his own backyard, let alone outside. So we had a discussion about the 11 plus and grammar schools. And at the moment, there are 163 grammar schools in the whole of the UK. Only four have... Uh, essentially at or above average in terms of disabled people. So they are very, very underrepresented in that sense. And that includes in his own constituency. And he didn't seem to know that that was an issue and then started putting forwards things like, oh, you know, we could put it in Ofsted inspections or we could give them grants, which doesn't really work with grammar schools because they are interested in getting lots of people with A-star grades, so those two things wouldn't necessarily affect them. So I was a bit worried that at points there were solutions put forwards that wouldn't tackle the issues, even if there were stuff that really affected his constituency uh, in the south of London. So there were bits like that where I think it was it was major issues that I was a bit worried that he wasn't really able 
to, to tackle properly, which, you know, at the end of the day, I went in and I was sort of leaning towards backing Ed Davey. But actually, I think after that interview and, you know, I, I just felt I wasn't sure, especially after mentioning, you know, that this is a system of grammar schools and secondary moderns made by somebody who quite literally believed that memory was inherited from father to son that, you know, and, and that not really making an impact, that was kind of my worry in terms of it. So as much as he said, you know, that he would look at the evidence and that kind of thing, I was just a bit worried about, you know, if you, if you can't look after your own house, how do you look after everyone else's? You know, if you can't look after your own constituency and understand the issues there, how do you look after the country as a whole? Uh, now, of course, the other can... Can I in there on one second? Because yeah, of there's, a, there's an observation that I've been making um, with this that, that tallies up with what you're saying, um, Torin, it's, um, I think one of the problems with going online with the leadership contest is that um, there's been a lot of different hustings in different places and a lot of different conversations all in, you know, um, different um, thematic places. And one of the problems that I'm finding in this leadership contest is people are being told what they want to hear in regards to their region and then it completely changes to another person's region. Hmm. And I think that there may be, I, I might make a call or try and um, get this addressed in terms of having maybe more national um, hustings because, um, you know, all of our... Um, issues that we have in our communities will, will will differ depending on demographic and I don't want a candidate that's answering to get them over the line I want a candidate that's going to be able to develop a, a, a cell that, that we can have scrutiny um, you know on a nationwide level so we have to start by having that with our own members and we are the most you know we love a scrutiny <laughs> so um, I'm a bit concerned about these conversations that are happening in different rooms in a way. Um, um, and it's not the first time I've sort of heard, uh, you know, oh, Ed, Ed gets my place, but he might not get someone else's or, and, you know, with any candidate. And that really concerns me as someone from, you know, a seat that we used to have as Liberal Democrats, who that is predominantly like metropolitan, you know, I think I deserve an answer on Europe too. You know, like people still ask me about it. We're we're solidly remain. That doesn't mean I'm going to go and you know get my EU flag out. But I do think that I deserve an answer from leadership on what that means to my voters. I mean, I think that the main issue uh, regarding that question. I mean, grammar schools. There, there are grammar schools up and down the country. It isn't just a sort of localized issue, um, as as many have seen it before. I, mm. I think the, the the main issue is just the fact that not only did he not really know what was going on within his own constituency but it being a national issue as well mm. was was for me very concerning just because it it is one of those issues where you know it is actually at the end of the day you know as i said four schools out of 163 with with even average levels of disabled students and that not being something because I, I do get it i mean especially now with sort of the the hustings and everything taking place regionally and everything else it's quite difficult then for leaders to go ah oh, this issue in this area you know the yeah. you know whatever's going on there but I, I think that the issue for me was it was something in his backyard that he even said that he'd done a lot of work on and has spoken to a lot of people on and I think yeah. that was my worry was when he says that and then suddenly doesn't come out with an answer that really has any weight that was kind of my worry I've seen a lot of um 
Ed talking about how he invented a policy or he helped policy, but but when you actually go back and do the work, it was more that he was in the room. <laughs> and I think in a way, um, it's probably not his fault, it's probably his messaging team fault, but you know, again, this comes back to leadership. Um, it's probably best not to do that. It's probably best to work out what it is that you are an expert in and what is your passion project rather than being an expert on all things ever because it doesn't work. Mm. Um, but yeah, the backyard thing's really concerning. I mean, we'll disagree on grammar schools, but it's still a valid question. You know, um, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, turning to the other uh, leadership candidate, Leila Moran, uh, w- what are your uh, thoughts on uh, her campaign, the way that she's uh, projected herself uh, in the media? Uh, Lena, if we could start with you. Yeah, I mean, she's she's been quite popular um, in the media, um, but I think that for me, what what my concerns would be uh, are both um, for me on a national level here in Wales, um, you know, the fact that I don't see the fact that she's going down very well here in Wales at all. I don't think she's made an effort to reach out to to the Welsh people um, or Welsh party members even, um, although we are having our hustings this weekend. So I will be watching with great intent to see um, what she comes up with. Um, but I think that with, with Leila, I think, you know, in, in that national setting, it's a bit of a hard one for her because education, you know, doesn't come from Westminster for us. So she can speak until she's blue in the face, but whatever she says is not relevant to Wales. Um, and I think for me on a personal level, I was very disheartened at the way that um, her team were campaigning. And I took a lot of offence to that. Um, I was actually approached um, by someone on her team who was telling me why I should vote for her and cited that I was like her. And that for me sort of went off in my head that, hang on, I'm not being respected based on my political beliefs. I'm being told who to vote for because I have a similar background to the candidate. And for me, I thought that was unacceptable. Um, And I did end up flagging that with another one of her team members. Um, And I got an apology, but too little too late, to be honest. But I don't like this identity politics that she tries to paint. Um, I think it's very childish in point scoring and I do worry about how she could change in that way. But having said that, the past two weeks, the action she's taken makes me believe that she is trying to get better and maybe she's changed who is advising her. So yeah, again, we'll wait and see. Uh, April, what are your thoughts on uh, Leila Moran's campaign? Oh, um, a similar thing happened with Joe's campaign in that a lot of women were approached like, oh, you're a woman, you're a liberal, you must vote this way because we told you to. And um, we, can't, we can't blame the campaigners for doing these incredibly obnoxious things, but we're absolutely right to flag them. So if that does happen, please, please do flag it with, with either candidate, really. Um, and I think it's quite interesting because the evidence suggests that more men are voting for Layla than women currently. And I think there is a problem with how we assume identity is the same as someone's politics. And it's something that uh, I'm not particularly comfortable with either. Um, it comes back to w- what she said. So um, I've been in enough campaigns to know that if someone has uh, uh, one of these, you know, I vote a certain way in this leadership thingy, that they're not necessarily part of the messaging office usually if they're that 
troublesome. They've probably <laughs> been cast out of it, thank God. Um, so I always try and hold the candidates to account. And, I, and I, again, I, I really validate the um, importance of hustings to do this in, in terms of how this leadership contest has gone online. Um, she's performed outstandingly at hustings. So I think there's sort of two politicians in this world. There's ones that get a bit sort of um, ratty when you ask them a question that they don't really like, you know, like Jeremy Corbyn running away kind of thing. Or there's people like myself who are weirdos who absolutely thrive on difficult questions and get a buzz off it. <laughs> and I think she is actually one of them and I think she's getting better at it all the time. So she's probably the only Lib Dem MP that I think that I could probably criticise in a constructive way and they wouldn't back me down, which is really important in terms of a recovery. That's something that I've just acknowledged this past week. This isn't why um, I'm backing her. Yeah, I have a multitude of reasons of why I'm backing her. Um, but they all sort of come down to the same idea that I put out initially is that we need um, a new vision and we need to be able to detoxify by bringing out different policies that aren't based on coalition or Brexit. We need to do something new. Um, I don't think talking about being a minister five, you know, five, ten years ago is going to particularly work. So um, despite all of the good work, we're, we're sort of saying that um, if I do two good things it erases your bad thing and voters don't think like that um one of the reasons why i think layla has understood that is because she actually was a teacher so a lot of her policies come from um a lived experience and they're the type of policies that teachers actually want rather than what politicians tell teachers that they want um so the, the abolishment of, of sats for instance um really exciting policy and when she first came out of it people were like oh my god this isn't going to land turns out she get the teachers love her the teachers in my family absolutely adore it we've I've got two um family members well not my family but you know mother-in-law and that who have been trade unionists teaching family all their year and they've just joined the party to vote for Layla like that for me um has um made it's encouraged me to get more involved in the campaign because before I wasn't I was just going to sit it out eat some popcorn watch how it went but then when that happened, it sort of made me think, oh, right, okay, no, um, there's something that's happening in real time, in real life, that's outside my political bubble. Um, I'd be a fool to ignore it. So I think that she has that ability to cut through. I don't like using that term because no one really actually knows what it means. But if I'm hearing about her in real life through like regular people, then that's quite difficult to ignore. And she has come up um, as well by my Green Party friends and um, I've seen her cited by Tories as someone like that they, they're worried about, which really surprised me because she's constantly criticised as being the, the left-wing one. But um, if you actually know, Ian Dale's like her biggest fan. <laughs> so she does have this weird like ability to be listened to across the spectrum. Um, for looking at it selfishly for my seat, I know that Labour want her... Um, out of the race more than anything so um, it helps me but I also think that it helps the seats like Cheadle where we need to squeeze these Labour votes so we can fight the Tories once and for all um, I think both candidates are struggling with the alliance question and I think there needs to be more clarity on that I'm not particularly a fan of fighting Labour locally and then saying oh I'm you know vote Labour in this seat or whatever 
but I am a fan of getting rid of the Tory. So I think I'd like some, um, I'd like a firmer put their vision from, from both candidates on that and on Europe, as we've mentioned. But um, I just think that when you look at her, she's just so smiley and so energetic and um, it comes across as something fresh and new. And I don't think that she has had to resort to identity politics the way that her fan base have. Um, and I know that she doesn't actually really like talking about um, her own background that much. Um, it depends on how she feels about it. Um, ultimately, we can't tell people how they feel about it. So I think we should, you know, as Lena says, you, you have to have somebody explain what their politics is, not what their background is before you validate them. And I, I, I'd agree with that. I think she's got a really interesting background in terms of her work experience and she's been able to sort of upgrade that through the means of being an MP. Um, and that's not often that happens in Westminster. So that's quite exciting. Uh, Torin, what are your thoughts on uh, Leila Moran as a candidate? Uh, how did she come across when you spoke to her? I think Layla, in uh, if you just view it in a very distant sense of how she presents herself and her focus on education, that for me would have been the perfect candidate um, in the sense that I've always been saying, okay, I think Lib Dem's you know, core flagpole should be education to try and push the Labour Party towards just focusing on the NHS and the Tories, the economy, and give us our own space to talk about and one that will be there and we can just keep on building on. But I mean, I, I'm not overly convinced. There's the issues that, that Lena talked about, which I completely agree with and have seen quite a lot um, more in third person though. Um, I, I think in the interview itself, there were things like universal basic income um, where I questioned her a bit on the, you know, the figures for that. And I didn't really feel that the answers were there. So for instance, uh, you know, it was how much, how would you basically afford to pay for it and what level would it be? And in terms of the level, it would be, what was it? 40, 50, 60 pounds a week, somewhere in that region. Um, and essentially that'd be per adult per week in the UK. Um, and they would also, the only benefit that she mentioned keeping, um, and of course you can correct this as anything else that she would keep, but was housing benefit. Now, the problem for me was, and I said this in my uh, Lived End Voice article just after, was that actually I've been speaking to someone who is an asylum seeker who has housing paid for him by the government, is on 40, 45 pounds a week or whatever it is now, and is genuinely struggling to get by. So I think that's kind of my worry is it, it depends exactly how it's formulated, of course. But I think, again, it's, it's that policy element. You know, it's not a surprise because running a think tank, I suppose that's what people expect. But in terms of it, it's, it's genuinely one of those worries that I had, which was that policy-wise, as soon as those tougher questions start getting asked, you know, how is this enough to live on, et cetera, et cetera. That was where I started getting worried. And I didn't get as much of a chance to question her as with Ed because Ed's answers were a lot shorter. So I could sort of, you know, chip in lots of different, different questions along the line. Um, so, yeah, I think it's very much one of those situations where I have s some big doubt doubts about the way the campaign has been run and just the policies in general and just policy knowledge with both of the candidates at this stage, which has basically just left me quite undecided. Um, now, moving away from the uh, individual candidates themselves to uh, the, the, the perhaps the the general perception 
of the campaign. Uh, and, and one that I've seen, I'm sure uh, each of you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but a perception that uh, Leila Moran is perhaps pitching herself uh, a bit more uh, to the left, perhaps trying to be a bit more left-wing uh, than Labour, and uh, Ed Davies perhaps pitching more towards a, a, a traditional uh, Liberal Democrat message. Now, looking at those two um, stark, uh, starkly different uh, messages or, or, or thematic uh, futures uh, for the party, which do you think will be the most successful uh, going forward, regardless of who is elected leader? Do you think that the Lib Dems should attempt to be more uh, towards the left of Labour, or do you think that they should uh, perhaps stick to a, a, a more general uh, ground that they have been uh, in the past? April, if you could start. So um, I'm not particularly in, into the idea of these labellings, because to be honest with you, it doesn't really matter where we are anyway. Someone else is going to assign this label. It didn't happen when we had a left of centre leader who got us 40 seats, you know, Charles Kennedy, he wasn't talked about being to the left of Labour, but, you, but depending on where you come up from in terms of civil liberties or so, social um, democracy, he was, but then on other things he wasn't, right? So it's really complicated. Um, so I... I find I find these labels kind of unhelpful to both candidates because um, one thing I've noticed in Ed's campaign this year is that he's actually listened to um, some of us lot <laughs> um, and has tried to incorporate these into his messages um, in this leadership race. Now, I don't know why that is. It's probably because there's a leadership contest on, but um, it doesn't really matter because he's not going to be um, accused of it in the same way that Layla is and because of the bitter taste that's been left in our mouth mouth post Corbyn um I try and avoid these um labels because I don't think they're particularly helpful to the party um I think it comes back to what's more radical and what will actually make an effective difference to um people <laughs> in real terms and the only people um they're the only people that matter, essentially. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that she's more radical. I think they've both got um, interesting policies, but they're actually collapsing into one in each of the spaces in order to get these undecided voters, um, whereas Labour, uh, sorry, Layla has established them from the outright. And I am um, particularly interested in um, showing up Labour where they are te terrible and liberal, for instance. I, um, that's one of my hobbies and passions. <laughs> but... I think Ed could do that too. Um, I just, I, I don't really, I don't particularly like the idea that we identify ourselves by the failures of other political members, um, sorry, other political parties. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't think she has labelled herself that way. I think her opponents have. And the flip side is true of Ed's opponents, right? So um, I try and step away from this discourse and just look at who in real times has um, policy answers for people that actually are going to listen. And that, for me, that's Layla. Um, Torin, what are your thoughts on this? Because I know you uh, live in a, a safe Conservative seat. So uh, how do you think that would, uh, if, if there were a, a shift or perhaps uh, n not a shift, how do you think that that would impact voters in your constituency? 
I mean, I found it quite funny because when I interviewed them and I asked them both, you know, um, for Layla, centre-left candidate, or for Ed, more orange booker, centre-right, both of them essentially ran for the hills and decided they were not whatever I had labelled them as, um, which is <laughs> fair enough. Um, but I, I think it's, it's very much one of those situations at the moment where neither really wants to be set out as a centre-left or centre-right candidate. Um, perhaps they're both centrists. I'd be very happy with that. Um, but it's, it's very much been one of those leadership elections where I think they have kind of almost, Layla has carved herself out sort of as a centre-left candidate and then tried to almost move away from that and say, actually, no, I can appeal to right-wing voters as well. Um, whereas, you know, on Ed's side, he's then been viewed very much as more establishment and coalition and everything, I think, has built up this image of being centre-right. Um, I mean, I, I think actually, yeah, both of them are more similar, um, even if they try and, you know, pull to the left or right slightly. I think they're both very similar in terms of their actual views. Um, and I think, you know, both are agreeing on, you know, stuff like universal basic income, which I, I think had Ed said, you know, I dislike universal basic income, it might have been a big issue in the election. Um, but now they've kind of started agreeing on stuff. Um, it's kind of weirdly turned into one where it's not really centre-left or centre-right. It's, you know, one of those weird leadership elections where it's just agreeance between the two candidates, a bit like last time, really, where they sat on an entire interview and basically just Ed and Joe agreed with each other. So it's, it's, it feels fairly like that in a lot of respects. Uh, Lena, what are your uh, thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I agree with with what Torrens just said. Um, we saw this happen in the last leadership election of just people agreeing with each other, um, which is hardly surprising because at the end of the day, we're in the same party. It's an internal election. Um, and, you know, we will be singing from the same hymn sheets. And at the end of the day, the policies put in um, are not decided by the leader. They're decided at conferences. They're decided by the policy committees, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what it really comes down to is which which candidate wants to wants to push what policy, um, and you know Ed has in the past always pursued the whole um, you know climate change and green issues sort of route, whereas Layla is more associated with education, and both of them are trying to jump out of those boxes and go well actually I have done other things, which is great, and I'm very glad that they've done other things, but you know it is hard to decide between the two candidates, and at the end of the day. Uh, you just have to judge them on other things. That's what I'm trying to do for me. I'm viewing it through the lens of who might go down better in my constituency, in my area. Um, and I've heard more about um, about Ed than I have Layla. But then at the end of the day, on national level um, and a UK-wide level, I, I do think that Layla is sort of more ruling the airwaves. So I, I think it'll be a hard toss-up. Uh, now, of course, uh, next year we're going to be seeing uh, local elections meant to occur uh, this year, but of course have been uh, delayed. Um, obviously, the Lib Dems will by then have a new leader. So what should be the focus for the Liberal Democrats going in to uh, the local elections and the elections in Scotland and Wales? Uh, Torin, if you could start. Uh, local elections, uh, at least in my area, often get dominated by potholes, uh, which is a very Lib Dem thing. Um, and I, I mean, at the end of the day, it is just focusing on those local issues. I mean, it, often, you know, it's trying to find some thread that runs through, you know, what we're doing. But I think in local elections, it's very much focusing on those areas. 
Scottish and Welsh elections, at the end of the day, I think one of the biggest thing that Lib- things that the Lib Dems need to do, even if it's not running on that platform, but at least talking about it, is essentially, you know, federalism or confederalism, whatever the model that we choose, but something like that, essentially devolution of powers um, and essentially making sure that, you know, those areas feel like they have their voices listened because I've just basically come out of being in Wales for three years and they do not feel like they're listened to. And if the Lib Dems do not listen to them, those people, like in Wales, they move to other parties. So that is part of it, is making sure that in those elections, we are listening to constituents and actually engaging with them because you have very, very different situations in those countries, you know, at the end of the day. They are interested, some of them, in in independence, which is not something you deal very much with in England. Um, So again, I think it's just having that local approach, local messaging, because at the end of the day, then people will respond well to that because they will know that actually the party is listening to them and their concerns, not just putting out national messages. Uh, April, what are your thoughts? Because, of course, you have um, stood as a a, a Lib Dem uh, candidate uh, for local elections. Um, what do you think the sort of like the main theme should be, and 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 do you think that there should be uh, a different focus, perhaps on the local elections, as compared to the, uh, the Scottish and Welsh election? elections? So, like <laughs> the idea that we're just going to stumble on this like perfectly gift-wrapped policy um, is nonsense. Um, what I always try and do, um, as Torin saying, what I always try and do, which luckily for me labor are terrible at it's just listening like the radical act of listening to what people want and what people need and establishing a way um of being able to deliver that in your community and um, so in manchester we have a, an extremely corrupt council um, we have a labor council that finds the homeless the majority of voters where i am don't know that and then when we tell them they want to get involved they want to see what's going on because we don't have um a sort of we we only have labor backed papers where we are it's down to us to inform them so i always try and run um leaflets and focuses through a mechanism of informing and listening and updating and then that way they know who i am they can count on me and we can get news that's like on a micro targeted level for people that feel disengaged from politics and um i wasn't a target seat but now i am just through this mechanism um i I think the liberal democrats are very good at listening but not as good as we think we are but in comparison to other parties we're still better at it but after the general election we need to find better strategies um i would implore the party to um pay more for focus groups we've not we've not been giving that enough attention um whoever wins they will not have all of the answers and they will not have all of the resources in this global pandemic you know our our office will be impaired and we'll be struggling to remedy many of the of the recommendations from Dorothy Thornbull's um report so I I would like to see an investment or some resources into how we go back and engage with people that have been lost because it's important that we have a cut through policy, but it's not going to be everything to everyone in every demographic. And sadly, we are quite a nebulous party in our target parliamentary seats and our council seats. Um, I'd also like um, HQ to pay attention to the seats that are closely 
um, lost and closely won. Um, I get a lot of support from ALDC, the Association of Local Democrat Councillors, but HQ only seems to be bothered about like London elections. Um, I'd like them to talk up more about what Kirsty Williams does, for instance. I'd like them to celebrate what we get right in every part of the country. So it comes back to listening to what we do too. Um, I'd like there to be more of a two-way conversation with the new leadership candidate, and that's what I'm going to be lobbying my arse off for. Um, Lena, what are your thoughts on this? Because, of course, you're uh, standing as a uh, Lib Dem uh, candidate uh, for the Senate. Uh, do you think that there should be a particular focus in the Welsh elections? What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, yeah, you mentioned local elections. Obviously, we don't have those. We've got our Senate elections. And for us, they're like our general elections because that's where the stuff that people want to hear about is talked about. It's where we talk about schools. It's where we talk about housing. It's where we talk about the NHS, um, which we don't do during, you know, the the UK-wide general elections. Now, um, in terms of the Welsh Party, I'm really lucky. I am actually on the Senate election steering group. So I've been doing a lot of work with that. Um, and I've been working on things like attack responses um, for the press and, and that sort of thing because I, I walk around Wales with a target on my back because of the actions taken by the Federal Party. For all intents and purposes, the Federal Party does not care for England, uh, for, for Wales, sorry. It doesn't care past England. Um, you know, you get to the, you get to the stereotypical office dyke and, and, and no one cares anymore. Um, so we are lucky that we are recruiting our own staffers and that we will have um, people who will be there to support candidates, to support campaign teams on the ground for this important election. Now, I have watched, I'm a member of the Welsh Board, I've watched the Welsh Board have to lobby federal bodies for our elections to get noticed, and that is utterly unacceptable if we want to see a resurgence in places like Wales or Scotland. Um, we just have to get better at it. And honestly, I don't think that either of the federal leadership candidates will um, will want to do that. And that's sort of how I perceived it in the last leadership election. I ended up voting for Ed because he was the candidate who would do the, he would do the least harm, effectively, um, to what was happening in the devolved seats. Um, and lo and behold, picking Joe did us a lot of harm. Um, so that's something that I'll be bearing in mind when I go to the hustings this weekend for... for um, for our leadership election is which candidate will probably do us the least harm in, in, in Wales because actually what the Federal Party does has no bearing or meaning on what happens in my nation. Uh, we're coming towards uh, the end of the podcast. It's been great uh, to speaking uh, to all three of you uh, about uh, the Lib Democrats and the Lib Dem leadership election. I have one final question and it's not directly uh, related uh, to the leadership election but We've touched upon uh, the coronavirus uh, pandemic, and of course, because of that, uh, there's been a, a lockdown in England, which is uh, beginning to be eased. Um, when we can finally get back to some uh, semblance of normality or uh, normality, uh, what is the one thing that you haven't been able to do uh, that you're most looking forward to doing? Uh, Torin, if you could start. Uh, for me, properly visiting my grandparents without having to wear a mask would be the, the number one thing and go in and have some tea. Um, it sounds a really simple thing, but at the end of the day, it's stuff like that where I just haven't been able to, to do it. So I would absolutely love to do that once like, things get back to normal. Uh, April, what are you most looking forward to being able to do? Knocking on doors. <laughs> Pretty much. Like... Um... We have a lot of um, vulnerable people in our community and uh, 
in, in with one of the problems that we've had with the pandemic is being able to reach out to them to offer them help without knocking on their doors right um we've managed to do that but say for instance your your language your first language is in english or whatever you know you're not going to understand what the earth i'm going on about but if i can go to your house and try and make some communication and see what's going on then i'm more likely to be able to make a difference and and um, keep people safe um thankfully in withington um, the community's really come together um, and everyone's been working really, really hard. But I do miss that doorstep interaction and, you know, chatting over the neighbour's fence kind of thing. And, um, yeah, um, I don't I don't have any family around me at the moment, so my heart goes out to people that can't see them. I suppose, like, that's where I've become a political geek. I just like going talking to other people's families. <laughs> uh, and finally, uh, Lena, what are you most looking forward to being able to do? Um, I'd started some community outreach work before uh, before COVID happened and I'm really excited to go back and, and check on that. Um, I would love to, I'm really missing this year the fact that we're not having our agricultural shows and stuff like that like normally have and I know that a lot of people in my community who are you know, very heavy farming community um, are struggling with things like um, reading through the new government documentation laws and we tend to facilitate that for them um, because uh, it's not a very English speaking community, it's more Welsh. So it's hard not being there in person to go through documents with them. So yeah, I can't wait to just be there and and talk to my farming lot. Uh, Well, I think you've given three great responses uh, to that question. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Don't forget that you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean or YouTube. You can follow us at Debated Podcast on Twitter, like us, Debated Podcast on Facebook. And if you want to email us, either about appearing or making a comment or reaction to the episode you've heard or any other episodes, then email us thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one. 